much and thank you for the offering this evening. Thank you for sharing as you do and thank you that you have the work of the ministry to move forward here at the New Life Baptist Church. If you have your Bible with you, if you will open it please to the book of Hebrews this evening, chapter number 11. Hebrews chapter number 11. And me, uh, while you're, we're getting our places and you finding yours in uh, Hebrews chapter number 11, let me uh, mention a couple of things. One, let me encourage you to be praying for uh, one another for sure and uh, pray that the Lord will keep you healthy and well and safe. But also let me encourage you to pray for all the folks in the work and the ministry here. Uh, begin with our Sunday school teachers who open the scriptures to us week after week and for all the teachers in every age group and uh, pray if you would that the Lord bless them and use them in a wonderful way. And then also uh, pray for our deacons as we uh, have been very busy with a lot of things going on in recent days and there will be things ahead of work and ministry that you need to pray for grace and strength and wisdom to them and then pray for folks who engage in the aspects of the ministry that we don't often think much about, and that is your ushers who, who help take care of the service and keep a watch on the parking lot and, and make sure that everything's going well. And for the music ministry, pray for the ladies at the instruments, Brother Mike as he leads us, Brother Barry on Wednesday night, and pray for all the folks in the choir who get up and practice and come in early to do it and then share with the services here. And then pray for the deaf ministry, and I still encourage you as often and frequently as you can, if you meet or know of people who are deaf and you run into them, uh, pull out a piece of paper and whatever and find out who they are and where they live. And uh, we'll do our best to follow up, try to get them in the services here with us. And uh, I think we have, uh, there are some of the cards left up here that we were using as invitations to the deaf. And if you uh, would take one with you, that would be helpful. And on the other side of the coin, and I saw it happen this morning, that uh, there were folks picked up some of the ultimate questions to take with them. And uh, that's a good thing. And maybe some folks that you won't necessarily get an opportunity to sit down and have a, an in-depth conversation with. But if you could take one of the ultimate questions and, and uh, just send it to them or hand it to them or give it to them some uh, way of communicating it, uh, it may be all it would take to let them get to thinking. They may not uh, turn to faith in Christ on the spot, but uh, uh, each witness that uh, is given is uh, certainly... Uh, given with the intent that the Lord could use it as a tool and use it as the truth and then let him take it from wherever he will. So uh, if you, um, as we spoke about in the morning service, uh, want to be salt and light, then the best thing to do is start right away and not put it off and and uh, think it will get easier or whatever. Uh, just get you some material and do what you can to communicate the truth and then ask the Lord to bless it. And he's faithful to do just that. So let me urge you uh, to find your load and lift it as it has to do with sharing the gospel. And we're all in this together. And uh, it's important that uh, before you meet the Lord, that there will be people who you at least got to communicate the gospel with. That's exceedingly important. And I hope that you'll take that to heart, and I hope that you'll use the material here, and I hope you'll pray for all the workers in the ministry. And there's others, folks who serve in the nursery, you know, folks all through the ministry that have uh, work to do and teaching and Wednesday night group and so forth. So pray for the work, the ministry, and ask God's blessing on it and, uh, and use it to his glory and that the lights, the bright lights of our witness will stay strong here at the New Life Baptist Church. For now, let me invite you to look down to Hebrews chapter 11, and don't forget you have a, a story of Moses in the Old Testament where we've been in chapter 2 of Exodus, and um, 
Then we have a, a story and a recap of things concerning him in Acts chapter 7. And then you have a, a brief presentation in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. So i remind you it's 7-11. It's the 7th chapter of Acts and it's 11th chapter of Hebrews where you'll find those things in the New Testament that primarily reflect or have summaries of Moses' life. So in chapter number 11 of Hebrews, verse number 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born was held or hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandments. Now, we've, we've read that before, and I don't intend to rehash any part of it except to bring one single point that I don't think I ha- hit hard enough, and that's this. This says that um, in verse number 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents. So the emphasis in this verse of Scripture is on the faith of Moses' parents. And uh, it's not Moses' faith. Moses didn't have faith at three months or whatever, or for the period of time that he was in this context. At least the Bible does not uh, emphasize that, nor does he write and reflect it elsewhere. So we take this verse that it was the faith of his parents. I I didn't hit hard enough, and I should have, that uh, the whole story of Moses is like uh, building a wall or building a building. Uh, the story of Moses' life is really the extension of the faith of his parents. So here's the deal. It's one thing to have to deal with our children when they get older and try to grow them or correct them in the direction they've gone. Remember this, as a tree is bent, so will it grow. So it's important that we understand that it's far, far better to take the time. And and I said take the time because it won't come easy for parents to train their children at a very early age and stick by it until they walk out the door and the nest is empty. Now, if we do that and we do it by faith, that would indicate that we want to follow because... uh, uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So faith is all tied up with the Word of God. So it's not enough for a parent to just tell a child to do something, and, and the child learns obedience to whatever the parent says. That's good, and that's right, and that's wonderful. But it needs to be tied into obedience to the Lord. Uh, a parent needs to make sure they teach their children that they ought to obey because they, the parents, have been given to the child, or you can say the child's been given to the parents, to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, not just train them up and send them forth to do whatever you can do and make whatever money you can and whatever career. Uh, the Bible does not speak anywhere of the emphasis of a career. And in our society, that's become a big deal is to get our child growing up so they can get a good job and make a good life. That's not what the Bible says. That's a, that's a world perception. The Bible perception is you train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. And that way is, is the faith that comes from obedience to the Scriptures. Let the child learn obedience to God's Word, and God has made a promise to those who come to faith in Him, who come to faith in reading the Word, hearing the Word, and obeying the Word. He has made a promise to them. He'll supply their needs. 
So the thing is this, I got a letter that I was, uh, I was purging some of my files and, and uh, the other day, and I pulled out a letter. A young man who attended the New Life Baptist Church years ago. In fact, he was a quarterback of the high school football team. Did a good job, I understand. I didn't see him play, uh, but while he was here, uh, he and I had uh, several conversations, and uh, I, I knew the Lord had something in his life when he was here, and the conversation that we had then uh, um, was affirmed by reading this letter. When he sent this letter back after he'd been away a while, he just wanted us to know that uh, while he was here at the New Life Baptist Church under the ministry of the Word week to week and uh, teachers and Sunday school and the whole ten yards, that uh, the Lord really began to do a work in his life. He went from here, and he and his family moved away, and they went to uh, in Kentucky, and he went to the University of Kentucky in studying to be engineering. And so the fact is, when we got the letter, that's where he was, and that's what he was doing. He was studying to be an engineer. Uh, I don't know where he is at this hour. I just know the letter that he sent. Uh, at that time, we were doing, uh, the church was doing a paper, Scott and Diane and were working on a paper here at the church. We called it Lifeline. Anybody remember the Lifeline? You remember the Lifeline? Lifeline had a bead of a heart on the front of it. It is written on gray paper and I think uh, sort of a maroon print or whatever. Uh, and, and what it was done, it was pictures of the work and the ministry and the people in it and what was going on and so forth. Particular issue, when he wrote this letter, uh, Brother Renee, we just started the Spanish ministry. And what happened was uh, this young man while he was here, was talking about the ministry and, and being, you know, the Lord using him and so forth. What happened was a friend of his who pastored a church in Kentucky asked him to come preach for him, and he went to preach at this uh, church of his friend and filled in for him. Now, he had never preached in his life, but in effect he believed that he could do it because he had a heart to do it, you know. So he went and did it and evidently did a pretty good job. They gave him an, a love offering. We took that love offering and he sent it to the New Life Baptist Church and marked it death ministry. Oh, excuse me. Spanish ministry. And so the money was turned over to the Spanish ministry and purchased material that we used and so forth. Now the thing about it is, I don't know whether he ever got called to preach, but I knew one line in the letter said, he said, uh, I just don't think the Lord wants me to be an engineer for the rest of my life. I believe the Lord's got something different for me. Now, let me tell you, that's where it is about when you get under God's word and you obey it, and you think, man, I've got this job, and it's going to be engineering. That's what I'm going to do for all whole life, and I'll make good money, and everything will grow. And you get into it, and you say, this isn't what I want to do the rest of my life. I want to go serve the Lord. But what happens is, now watch carefully, what happens too often is in our society with the peer pressure and sometimes parental pressure, we push a child into doing something they wouldn't necessarily do if they were under the Word and growing, maturing in the faith and what have you. They go do it because they believe either their parents want them to do that or their peers will push them into that. And where their heart is, I want to go serve the Lord. The fellow who helped start the Welch's Grape Juice Company, the Welch family, one of his sons left the grape juice making company, became a missionary. People said he's wasting his life. Why did he why did he leave the great wealth of the Welch's people and why did he think for a second that going into a mission field work would be beneficial and profitable and financially prospering to it? Well, one time in a meeting, in a candidate's meeting, that is when he'd gone to a church, somebody asked him, said, Why in the world 
would you leave all the money in the Welch Foundation that you and your family have established, and you would give up all the wealth that that has produced for your families, and you would turn around and go to some mission field, and they won't even know who you are. Why would you do that? And he said, because I didn't, and my parents did not train me to take over the Welch Foundation. My parents trained me to follow the will of God. Now let me tell you something. That's a major choice because here's a guy who had, had no wants for the rest of his life. He just stayed with the company. But he said his parents taught him, you know, you need to live by faith. By the way, the first grape juice that was intended by the Welch people was intended for communion services in churches. That's how the whole thing got rolling. So his family taught him from square one that here's what you need to do. You need to know what the Bible says and then you need to go do it. Well, when he went to tell his folks, some folks said, well, I bet your parents were really upset when you told them you were leaving the company. He said, no, my parents asked us one question. Is this the will of God for you? And he said, I said, yes. And then they said, we're behind you. I say to you, our society does not want that. The devil doesn't want that. And for sure, they'll do and fight in every way they can to stop it. And even in the case with Moses, his parents obviously were uh, interested in them uh, doing the will of God, and they they uh, express that by them doing the will of God. The Bible says they were not afraid of the king's commandment. I don't know, but, uh, you know, if uh, the president passed some statement about what he was going to do, and you stood up against it because you, by faith, believed God had another program, uh, let me tell you, that was that's a little bit of shake of ground for you. Now, we would say, oh, no, I'm standing on the Bible, I'm confident and all that. Well, we can say that sitting in a cushioned, air-conditioned building on uh, some August evening. But if the President of the United States issued a decree concerning something that goes against who we are, what we stand for, and was going to take our children away and do something with them, destroy them or whatever, the fact of the matter is you might shake in your boots a little bit, but the Bible says these folks operated by faith. Now let me tell you something. When parents operate by faith and not by foolishness of the world's perception, like so much happens nowadays, it is no surprise you have a son grow up and operates by faith and then is called into the ministry to be used of God to lead millions of Jewish people through the wilderness and toward the promised land. Though he didn't get there, he just finished the first leg of it. He got them out of Egypt, headed them toward the promised land, and it was left up to Joshua to get them in. But the point made is it all hinged upon the parents' faith to operate with faith, not, not just in some things, but all things, all aspects of the life. He grew up in a setting where there would certainly be an operation and function of faith. And by the way, that's the only way he could have kept it while he lived 40 years inside the palace of Egypt. I mean, that's no, that's no walk in the park. You have a, a, you have a country, an empire, that had um, as many gods as you could count on your fingers and toes. And Israel was exposed to that for 350 years. And Moses was in the hot spot of it being in the palace of the Pharaoh. I mean, there was no mention in the palace of the Pharaoh. You can bet your life on that they never mentioned Jehovah God. But they mentioned every other God they had, and they had abundance of them. But somehow in the middle of all that, here's a guy who spends 40 years there, comes out on the other side, and the first thing we hear about him in the book of Acts is he believed God had called him to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And the next thing we know is in Exodus chapter 3 where he's at the burning bush on the backside of the desert with his father-in-law's sheep, Jethro. 
It's obvious that Moses was a guy whose parents' faith didn't substitute for his own, but created an environment where he really believed God and wanted to walk with God and live for God and serve God like nobody else would have. And by the way, if you look at Egypt in the context of all that happened with them and the stories the Scripture sets up about them, it's obvious they do do a good job of symbolizing the world. And not that they always do represent that in the Bible, but it's understandable when you read that you think of Egypt as a worldly place because it got all these gods. But the truth of the matter is, Moses flourished in that. There's no evidence that at all that his faith wavered. He come out of the 40 years in the palace of the Pharaoh swinging. I mean, the first thing he does is he kills an Egyptian because he's going to deliver the Israelites who were God-fearing people. That doesn't sound like somebody whose faith is shaky. Sound like somebody who's confident that God had called him. He was to be a deliverer of Israel, and he's going to get down to the business and do it right here, right now. Now, I believe the Lord was saying, uh, "You're not working with me. You're you're doing it on your own. That's not what I had in mind." And I'll get you to the backside of the desert. And I believe that's how the whole issue came up about fearing and fleeing and leaving Egypt. Is I believe God made it. A revelation. I believe God got the word out. And it forced him to leave so God could get him alone and he could work with him. So 40 years, he's on the backside of the desert. What I want you to get before we go further is to understand that parents in our church who have young people, the hardest time you'll have is in those early years of rearing them and getting them to absolutely watch and observe what you're doing to live by faith. But those will be the best years you've got to invest your faith in them. And uh, it gets boring, it gets tiring, it gets uh, it gets weary, and uh, and maybe sometimes gets discouraging if you can't see results. But I'm here to tell you, you need to stay at it, because it'll be better that you spend your time now in the effort and prayer and dependence on the Lord and expressions of your faith, and they see it, than it will when you have to get them older and you have to start working and trying to salvage. Somebody who went the wrong way. So it's better to start early, lay a good foundation of faith in your home and your family and in parents, and let their children see the operation of faith as they grow older then. It's, uh, it's not a thing of having to reclaim anybody. It's just a matter of encouraging spiritual maturity. Now, leave where you are in, uh, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Go all the way back over to Exodus chapter number 3. In Exodus chapter number 3, we uh, the setting that's prepared for us in chapter 3, in verse number 2 it says he's now, verse 1 tells us he's on the backside of the desert, and he came to the mountain of God, which is Horeb. In verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And remember, this is the backside of the desert. So the bush and all the stuff around one would be in an arid, dry context. And you have this bush that's caught on fire. And yet this bush is not burning up. And yet it's in a desert. So the fact is that there is something miraculous about it. And, of course, that miraculous aspect is what draws Moses' attention. Verse 3, Moses said, I will now turn aside, see this great sight. Why? This bush is not burnt. So Moses caught on very quickly that there's something unique about a bush in an arid desert and it's on fire, but it's not burning up. 
So the first revelation that God gives of himself to uh, Moses is from a burning bush that doesn't burn up, and God speaks. Now, all of which is really outside the realm of likely. You know, who's going to walk up in a desert somewhere and a bush catch fire and God starts speaking? So right off the bat, it becomes a matter that uh, Moses is not... um, not startled to the point to run away. He's startled at what he sees as a visible object of a burning burning bush, and then out of it comes a voice. Because the Bible says succinctly, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, and this bush was not consumed. And so Moses in verse 3 says he turns aside and he goes to look. Verse 4, it says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush. Two things. One, in verse 2, he's called the angel of the Lord. In verse 4, he's called God. The likelihood is this is a pre-incarnate presentation, revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's God, and he has shown up here in the Old Testament. We call them the Athenes and the fact is, it's a case where uh, the communication is in a keeping with what God would say to him, what God wanted him to do. And so in this case, God calls to him out of that. What's well, one thing that's interesting to me is that Moses uh, sees in verse number 3 when he turns to look at this, and he calls it a great sight. Uh, that's important because uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, one of the things that God is going to teach him, and uh, from this sec- section even further, is God's greatness. Uh, because what he's about to undertake is going to take a great God, and it's going to take a great job to get it done. So everything about it is going to have to be great. I was just running some rabbit trails the other day and ran into a few. Let me, uh, let me show you a few. For instance, look, if you would, to the book of Job. You're in Exodus. Go all the way over to the book of Job. And look at chapter 5, Job chapter 5, and go down to verse number 6. Job 5 and verse 6, and we'll read through verse number 9. Job 5 verse 6 says, Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground. Verse 7, Yet man is born unto trouble, As the sparks fly upward, I would seek unto God, and to God would I commit my cause, verse 9, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. This is Eliphaz, and he's rebuking Job for what he had just been saying in the previous chapter, but Eliphaz is smart enough to know that there are some things that... um, come to you in trouble and you may question how you're going to get through it how's this going to work out and so forth and he says in verse 7 man's born into trouble as the sparks fly upward and I would seek unto God and unto God would I commit my cause meaning uh, you know whatever this issue is God's in charge and God sees God knows and I just commit myself to him so he tells Job, just commit yourself to him. As if it's, if it's too great a thing, verse 9, don't worry about it, because which doeth, and he's talking about God, which doeth great things, unsearchable, marvelous things without number. One of the problems that our present-day Christian faith carries with it is we have a too little 
picture of the greatness of our God. You'll forgive me, but there's not anybody in this room who really has got a grip on how great God is, and that's including me as a preacher. We have a great God. We don't have some flimsy idol or wood thing or stone thing or whatever. We have a great God that created the universe and all that in it is. He sustains it. He keeps it working. He keeps the air moving. He keeps the oceans at the exact levels and temperatures in the right places so life can be continuously reproduced and all of that with an evaporation system that makes sure that it rains at the right time in the right place so that the coverage of the earth is refreshed. There's somebody in charge. We know who it is. It's our great God. But we face small problems And when we face these small problems, sometimes we act like uh, there's no God in a hundred miles from here. And yet God is always present. He is omnipresent. And He's not uh, uh, wherever He is. His greatness is such that He is all present at any given place. And yet He's everywhere. He's all there. We don't have a part of God at the New Life Baptist Church where we have His promise, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. He didn't say, a part of me will be with you, and the other part of me will be over here at the other Baptist fellowship, or over here at this other independent group, or this home Bible study. He said, where two or three of you gather together in my name, there I will be in the midst of it. Great God. A great God. And our perception of that is is that we we simply get overwhelmed by things. We just get run over like Mack trucks. And we become challenged, discouraged, defeated, depressed. And, and, and our problem is uh, we, we don't sit down and recognize how great our God is. We sit down and think how great our problem is. That's not spiritual maturity. That's not the way God ordained it. Because Eliphaz sits here, and Eliphaz is not the most spiritual guy in a group. And Eliphaz said, look, everybody's going to have trouble. And some of it's going to be so overwhelming that you're going to say to yourself, I don't know what to do with this. And, and Eliphaz said, I, I tell you what you need to do is just commit it to the Lord. And then he says, the reason for that is because he's a great God. He does marvelous things, wondrous things. And the fact is, he can handle anything you throw at him. And that's true. You see, um, anybody who can create the world and all that it is and then do it in the same time or the period of time that he did, in fact, he could have done it in a lot less if he wished. But to serve his own purposes, he spread it out in six days. But the fact is, since he can do any of that, then don't you feel a little foolish thinking that he can't solve anything your brain or my brain could come up with? Doesn't that make us look a little silly? Don't we feel a little... You know, embarrassed that we got this situation and we think it can't be solved or we can't solve it or it can't be worked out and we got this great God in heaven sitting there and he's not wringing his hands and he's not twiddling his thumbs. He's at peace because he is in charge. He just wished we knew it. He just wishes we understood that. Oh, that my children would not be so turbulent and so frightened and scared and all bent out of shape if they only knew I'm in charge. In Moses' case, I believe he knew that, and I believe he learned that, but it'll only get bigger and better as he goes further in his relationship. Look from Job chapter number 5. Look over Job chapter 9. 
Job chapter 9, Job is talking here. He's acknowledging things that God's engaged with. Look down to chapter 9 of Job and look down to verse 10. And he gives a whole bunch of witches, you know, and he talks in verse 1, Job answered and said, I know it is of a truth, but how should a man be just with God? And verse 3 even says, if he will contend with him, he cannot answer him. Uh, One of a thousand, he is wise in heart, mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him, and hath prospered, which removeth the mountains, they know not which overturneth them in his anger. And he gives a whole bunch of things that he does, which shaketh the earth, verse 6, which commandeth the sun, verse 7, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and and treadeth upon the waves of the sea, verse 8, verse 9, which uh, maketh Arthurus, and Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south which do it now watch verse 10 which doeth great things past finding out and yea wonders without numbers don't forget the phrase wonders without numbers that's how great he is he does wonders without numbers and he does great things past finding out. One uh, translation from a Hebrew text is, he does things that people could not figure out. Now, our president does some things I can't figure out, but they're not on the same level. God does some things, and the Bible itself testifies to this fact, that people can't find it out. You can't, you can't search it out. You can't, you can't sit down and mathematically uh, put out to equations where you can get this thing settled and say, hey, I know exactly what he did. You, you couldn't do that. That verse of Scripture says you can't even figure it out. And uh, we have some brilliant minds. God's given some people some very brilliant minds to do some brilliant stuff. But the fact of the matter is the Bible testifies of the great God that we have under the inspiration of Scripture. Job writes it for us and says, hey, hey he, he does stuff that's past finding out. You can't find it out. You can't figure it out. You can't explain it. You can't explain him. Uh, he's beyond all that. I say to you that uh, if we could just get back to that, and I believe Job was getting close to understanding it more fully when he wrote this text in chapter 9. But that's not all I said. Skip all the way over to chapter 37. Job chapter 37. Look down to verse number 5. Job 37. And look at verse number 5. Job 37, verse 5, God thundereth marvelously with his voice. Great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend. The fact of the matter is that uh, you can't just not figure them out. You can't comprehend them, nor I. We, neither of us, can comprehend them. Uh, comprehend here in this text from a Hebrew word would mean what you hear said today. I can't wrap my mind around that. That's exactly a translation that comes from one of the newer versions. I can't wrap my mind around this. What's he talking about? What God did. You just can't understand it. You can't comprehend it. You can't, you can't equate to it. You can't relate to it. You can't uh, interpret it. You, can't, you just can't do anything about it. It's so beyond us. And yet the amazing thing is it, is it not amazing that this is the oldest book in the Bible? This is the first book, as it were, of the Bible. The oldest book in the Bible. And Job didn't have a manuscript. 
He didn't have Jesus Christ walking around like he did at the Sea of Galilee, and he didn't have any of the miracles done. He didn't have any of the wonders of his grace accomplished, and redemption was not on the books yet in regard to fulfilled. And the fact of the matter is, here's a guy telling us how great God is. Don't you feel a little foolish? We have a Bible, Holy Spirit, salvation, seen redemption, worked in the lives of people, see people's lives change, and we are a little skittish about what God can do. You know, there's uh, our songs in our songbook. Let's see. Let's see. There are two or three of these. Let me, uh, 38, page 38. Yeah, you don't have to turn if you don't wish, but let me just remind you of something. I don't know that there's a, a song that's written any better to emphasize this, but uh, page 38. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, and I hear the rolling thunder, the power, thy power, throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Verse 2, when through the woods and forest glades I wonder, and here the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur, and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze, and when I think that God, his Son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. When Christ shall come, with shout of acclamation, and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration, and there proclaim, My God, how great thou art. I don't know, but uh, it was sure seen to me that Stuart Heim got a hold of the whole idea of what Moses got a hold of. How great thou art. And I say to you that in, in your work and my work and the ministry we have, uh, God's people need to keep a fresh perspective of how great God is. If you ever lose that, then the smallest of problems will absolutely wipe off your faith. If you can't trust God when everything is against you, you can't trust God when everything is for you. It's as simple as that. Because God does not change with your circumstances or mine. It's not a matter that when, when everything's going great, God is in charge. When it's going bad, then where in the world is God? That's not how it works. God is always on duty. God is always faithful. God is always aware of everything going on in your life, my life, and everybody else's life on the face of planet Earth. And everywhere else there may be people. And the fact is, that's how great He is. He can keep up with all of us. He understands what you're doing. He looked down on Israel and said, Hey, I've heard your cry. And uh, he has a plan, and obviously he's not going to circumvent his plan uh, just because you and I have a little bit of hardship. So here they are down there in bondage for 350 years. And finally, in the case with Moses, he decides he's found a man who can be his deliverer. And so he begins to work to deliver Israel through Moses. 
But when Moses started out and killed the Egyptian and was going to deliver Israel that way, the Lord said, no, 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 no. That's not the way we're going to do this. And so he takes Moses to the backside of the desert. He has some more teaching, some more training, some more humbling, and some more brokenness he'll pull him through. My point is, God's aware, but just because he doesn't hop to every desire we have when we're in a crisis, it just shows how great he is. He's got a bigger plan. And you and I can't understand it. We can't comprehend it. Just what the Bible said. You can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend it. I can't explain it. You can't explain it. But we know one thing. He can explain himself whenever he wishes. He revealed himself in cases throughout the scriptures. Showed himself strong in places. Revealed himself. Expressed himself. And even relayed the plan that he was working to some people. But if he doesn't do it to you and I, that's where our faith comes in to say, hey, I, I, I don't know, I can't, I can't trace his hand, but I can trust his heart. He's a great God. And I say to you, the passages of Scripture don't stop here. Go from where you are, Job 38 or 37, and look over to Psalm 48. And look at the first two verses. Psalm 48, and look at the first two verses in this psalm. Psalm 48, verse 1, great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. Beautiful for situation. Now, you understand the word situation has a little bit of a varied meaning, but when he says beautiful for situation, it can be interpreted um, excellent is his handling of a situation. Beautiful for situation. You can't come up with a situation, uh, issues or problems or challenges. Uh, you can't create one that he can't look good solving. That's what it means. Beautiful for situation. You come up with a problem, he'll come up with a beauty of a fix. That's part of the idea. It curves and has a secondary meaning, but that'll get the point. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. And part of that beautiful situation was the, you know, the, the fighting and the turmoil and the strife that was going against the great city and how that even that God used. And he, he used it in a wonderful way to teach Israel that it wasn't so much the city was sacred. It was the God who was over the city that was sacred. And that's who they needed to look to. Don't, don't trust in objects because Jerusalem at one time became a place of worship itself. People bowed down on the outside of Jerusalem and worshipped it. And God's not going to let that happen. So he says, no, 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 no. Your, your challenges you're faced with, the city can't solve your problem. I can solve your problem. I'm the one that's beautiful for situation. The city is a city that I've established and I've set my name there and it's going to be blessed but only as it does and its people does what they ought to do and that is live by faith. Look from where you are in chapter 48 over to Psalm 77. Psalm 77. In Psalm 77, look down to verse number 11. Psalm 77, 11. 77.11, the Bible says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Verse 13, 
Thy way, O Lord, or O God, is in the sanctuary who is so great a God as our God. That's one you ought to really let settle in your heart. Just ask yourself, who is so great a God as our God is? The truth of the matter is that the way some of us uh, relate and uh, understand our problem, but we don't seem to understand God as often or as easily as we should, uh, that'd be a good question to ask yourself often. Who is so great a God as our God? And if your God is, um, you know, if your God is not as big as the problem you're faced, then it's quite obvious you've got the wrong God. Our God is uh, fixed to fix all problems. He tells us he's... Um, in effect, prepared for, able, and capable of taking the hardest, most difficult problem man has con- concocted, and God can look good solving it. There's a song that's uh, come of late. It's, uh, I believe, an old song, but um, it's of late become a, a rather a favorite kind of song, and I believe I, I believe I heard it. Our family and I uh, were in my van today, and I think I had it going then. It's a, it's a. Uh, Maybe it's not the one I had on today, but it's a song that is on one of the tapes I have in my van that I play often. It's called, O Great God. It goes, O Great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Now just think about that. O Great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Own it all and reign supreme. He's talking about his heart. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain. That resist your holy word. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice. Did not know the love within. Had no taste for heaven's joys. And then your spirit gave to me, opened up your word to me. And through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, 
glorify your name through me. O great God of heaven, glorify yourself through me. It's interesting to me that some of the things that I've read in quotes the last few days, and with this I'll close, so you bear with me for a moment. I was reading this the other day in a a good quote. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? Because God is a great God. He's had all the thoughts He'll ever have, and He had them from the beginning. What we need is not great faith, but we need a faith that's in a great God. Regarding creation of our great God, the closer you look, the more wonderful you see Him to be. God's greatness is seen in that men throw broken things away, but it seems God never uses anything until He first breaks it. What a great God. And it's one of those things that God's greatness is seen in that we can never really go where God is not and where He is, where He is, all is well. When you get to a point where that's the way you feel about God, you may begin to get a glimpse of how great He is. Wherever He is, all is well. Prayer years ago, and many of you I'm sure remember the program, they had the, the Haven of Rest Quartet would sing, and they had a Haven of Rest broadcast. And at the, um, I don't know if it's at the beginning or at the end of the broadcast, they came across with this thing, eight bells and all is well. Now, I'm not a sailor, and I don't know anything about that. But every time I think about that, I think about the same attitude and action taken in this context. And that is to say that there's nowhere God is not. And because of that, that is, in hell, he's not there. That's the one place you could go that he won't be there. But it was created with purposes outside of him. And the fact it is, wherever God is, and he is everywhere outside of hell, everything is well. It doesn't mean that everything's going the way we would want it to. It just means he's in charge and everything is under control. And you can say, well, uh, but this happened to me. Well, just know that if it happened to you, he had to allow it to happen to you. And if he allowed it, then he's got purposes for it. And the secret then of faith, as the faith that Moses' parents had, was to trust him. That it'll work for their good and for his glory. Not to worry about it. Don't get bent out of shape over it. When situations come that you don't necessarily understand or appreciate, God had moved, he had moved an inch. He still is on the throne and he's still in charge. And he'll work his will after his own pleasure. It's good for God's people to have enough faith to get through those times without acting like Job's wife did. Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Job said, Shall you receive good at the hand of God and not evil? Do you suggest that I just worship Him and I trust Him when things are going well? 
Well, obviously she doesn't answer such a question, but Job did. He says, in effect, that no, no, you trust him all the time because he's God. He's in charge. He allows into our lives what pleases him, and we need to learn that if it pleases him, ultimately it's good for us. Oh, it's not to say it's not painful and you won't have to take aspirin or pain medication. It just says that if we get to a point where we trust him so absolutely, you'll find out that in the end he gets glorified and you get advanced. So the issue is trusting him. And the issue starts when we're young and we learn it. You know, I was thinking the other day what I learned from my parents and things they did that, uh, you know, reflected their faith, things that they did that I didn't fully understand then. But I look back, I see things they did that would encourage me that you can trust God. It will work out. My mother went through a period where she was uh, uh, coming home from work one day, and uh, as she was coming home, she rode with a uh, with a man and his wife and another lady who was nearby, and uh, they were turning in the driveway to where my parents lived and where I grew up, and as they were turning in, a car came in the other direction and hit the side of the car. It sort of it didn't quite make it in the middle, so it wouldn't be a T-bone. But it was very close to that, and my mother was sitting in the passenger side or in the rear of the car in the back seat. And uh, when the car hit, it threw my mother against the, the door. And uh, my mother went blind for a while. And I remember as a young boy when uh, when she went through this thing, and they took her to a doctor, and the doctor said, we don't know what to do. We have no idea, no idea what happened. We we can't tell anything. And they did some uh, scans and checks and so forth. And they just said, we can't help you. You're blind and there's really nothing we could do. And uh, my father wasn't going to accept that. And so my father uh, got a friend of the family's and made contact with him and see what he would recommend. And um, they recommended another medical doctor, and then they recommended a chiropractor. And their assumption was that there might be a nerve that was um, dislodged or moved or whatever. And so uh, I can remember my mother wearing dark glasses uh, everywhere in the house and somebody leading her to the bed and leading her to the kitchen table and sitting her down and, and getting her food and putting up to her hand so she could see what to eat and what where it was and where it was located. And uh, I, I sat there as a young boy and just marveled at this and I said to myself, how could this happen to my mother? My mother was out working, trying to take care of our family, and, and my father was working, and they were just keeping a uh, house over us. And how could this happen? And yet I remember my father saying, I don't know why it happened, but we need to accept the fact that it has, and we need to trust the Lord that this will work out to his glory. And my father is not given to that. My father was a good man, but my father was not one who was really uh, maturing in his faith the way I'd hoped he would. But I believe he was born again, saved on his way to heaven. But he said, we just need to trust him that, that this is going to work out okay. Well, might I tell you that it didn't die in time it did. My mother went to a, a doctor, and I don't know that they really did anything, frankly. I'm not sure that uh, I could even be assured that the medical community did a single thing to change her condition. But I just remember the morning when my mother woke up and said, I can see. I can see. And I remember that. But I also remembered what went with it. My father said, 
I told you the Lord would take care of this. And I believed him. I don't know what your problem might be or your challenge may become or you may face this week or next or three weeks from now or three years from now. But I do know this. If God is your Father, you're in good hands. He's a great God. You can't make a mess. He can't fix. But obviously, we don't want to make messes. We want to make sure that we read, study, and obey what's written in this book. It makes the work easier for Him to accomplish His will in our lives and to fulfill His will when something does come that's out of our comfort zone. So I hope you'll get a hold on that. May God help you to know, as Moses is going to learn, we have a great God, and don't forget Him. We'll not sing this evening. I'll ask you to stand to your feet, and we'll have a word of prayer, and you can be on your way home. Let me thank you for being faithful, and let me thank you for listening and being attentive. And I hope that you'll join us Wednesday for our service time. And don't forget to pray for Evelyn Gardner on Thursday in her surgery. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you dearly this evening. And we thank you for what you've recorded in your word that will help us to to, uh, reach out to the realization of your greatness. Thank you for all the statements that the scriptures reveal to us in this evening, as we've only read a very few of them, of how great you are. Things that we don't often think on and, and we don't contemplate, but enough, Father, to tell us that you're a great God. And you want to work in our lives, and uh, you have great joy in doing what we think would be impossible or things that we'd think would be improbable like setting a bush on fire in a desert place where everything around them could have caught fire and burn up a, any of the tumbleweed or the brambles or the bushes, but it didn't. Just one bush, it burned, and then a voice of the angel of the Lord came out of it. And when God spoke, he spoke to Moses. Father, remind us that sometimes when life gets a little hot by the problems we're faced It may once again be you talking. And it may be that we need to grow and mature in our faith. And whatever the fire of affliction or suffering or difficulty that you've allowed to come into our lives, just help us to listen for your voice. Help us to be attentive to the fact that you're in charge and wherever you are, all is well. Help us to rest in the greatness that you are and wonder that you accomplish and do And help us to recognize very quickly we won't be able to figure you out and we're not supposed to. I pray this evening you'll give our people an enlarged perception of your greatness. Give this preacher an enlarged perception of your greatness. And help us to rest and trust in you when it seems things are impossible. Thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace, and especially your patience. We're a needy people. We need to grow in our faith concerning your greatness, and I pray we will. And may this service be a stepping stone toward that end. Please glorify yourself in our lives this week.